here we go. Spring of 2020. This is the 1080 Outdoors Podcast Land Management Series, where our main focus is pursuing the truth for everyday hunters like you. I wouldn't say it's kind of an FU, it's definitely an FU. Chronicle and document how our season's going and give you real-time updates, overall land management practices. You have to find a way to hunt big buck where they are. We're joined with turkey biologist Mike Chamberlain. Uh, Mike, obviously I think the, the first question is how did you come to being a wildlife biologist and specifically how did you narrow down your focus on turkeys? Uh, well, as a kid, I pretty much knew I wanted to, well, I thought I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. I didn't really know what, what that meant. I just knew that I'd liked critters more than people. So, um, I figured if I could get an education and go study animals that, uh, I'd enjoy it. And as it turned out, when I got into college and, and realized what was actually involved, um, really took off got excited about it. And once I got to grad school and realized you could actually make a living doing research, that was pretty, that was pretty enlightening light bulb moments, if you will. So yeah, from there, honestly, I fell into studying turkeys. I, I was interested in turkeys as a kid. And when I went to college, of course, I have turkey hunted my entire life. So I, I was interested in birds. I just, um, I just got an opportunity to to study on a project that was a turkey project. And in my field, sometimes you can't really pick what you study in grad school. Sometimes you just take the opportunities that come along. And that's basically what happened with me. I was on the chance to study on a turkey project and took it. And from there, it just kind of, you know, life took me down the road that it has. And since then, that's pretty much, I mean, I've, I've studied a lot of critters in my, in my career, but turkeys are the only animal I've studied consistently since my time in grad school. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Jed, do you have a specific critter that you'd like to ask about outside of turkeys before we get into it? I just want to know what your uh, favorite experience was with a non-turkey critter in your research. Huh, favorite experience probably I, I wouldn't say it was yeah it was it's, it ranks right up there was um in grad school you have an advisor which is usually kind of a stuffy cranky old dude um like me um <laughs> so my advisor showed up to um to spend the day in the field with me and my advisor was a um six foot seven, big, tall guy, big guy, deep voice, powerful power, you know, just, you can kind of envision this guy, he just, he looms over you when he talks to you. And I was trapping coyotes at the time and I caught a, a who it had rained all night and I caught her on a deer carcass and the deer carcass was rotten. So it was covered in maggots. And she rolled in this carcass all night and was covered in muddy, funky, stinky, just, oh, it was unbelievable. And we would put these, these captured animals in the truck with us. 
and take them back to where we would put collars on. And she had to ride in his lap. <laughs> and that to this day, he he cussed, he he said words that don't even exist. <laughs> and that to me to this day is the funniest experience I've had with a critter doing research because I got to listen to him cuss and I can still I, I'm serious. I can still smell that <laughs> the the smell was just it was just unbelievable. Um so that that would rank right up there with, with in my mind anyway. So how, you said that she's riding on his lap um like sedated or no, we actually just hobble them. Okay. Uh, they coyotes, you can sedate them, but you really don't have to. You can, you can just, um, you can hobble them and then put a muzzle on them. Yep. So we would just hobble them and put a muzzle on them and put them in the floorboard or the front seat and take them down the road. And they, they just lay there pretty, they're pretty docile once they know they've been beaten. So, right. yep. um, so yeah, we just, uh, flopped her up in his lap and and uh it made for quite a memorable experience oh that'd be so funny if you guys would have gotten pulled over can you imagine the look on the cop's <laughs> face yeah yeah thankfully we were trapping you know most of our work is in pretty remote areas and if yeah. if a cop did pull you over they probably they they know what we're doing anyway so they right. don't get the strange looks you would get elsewhere sure what's uh Speaking of trapping, I don't want to get too far off subject, but what is the toughest animal like that puts up the biggest fight that you've trapped in during research? Uh, pound for pound would be bobcats and raccoons. <clears throat> they, uh, they're brutal for their size. Yeah. Uh, black bears are, I mean, I've done a lot of work with bears and they're, they're a powerful animal, but man, cats are just, they're just hell on wheels. They are just, they're mad all the time. And they're really mad when you show up to get them out of a trap. So uh, I'd have to say raccoons and bobcats have been the toughest as far as just, just absolutely ferocious when it's time to, to, to remove them from the trap. Yeah. You snug a bobcat once in you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not, it's not something I would like to be doing. So moving back into the Turkey stuff, um, with all your research, would you say your research, uh, most of it's being done during the spring and how much time do you actually get to hunt every year? So our work starts in the winter when we trap during the winter when they're in flocks so we can get biggest bang for your buck, if you will. So we start in, depending on when deer season is timed, we, we have to, I mean, we, we can't bait and trap when deer seasons are ongoing, at least on public land. So we, we usually start in late December, January, and then about now, you know, we're towards the end of April. Right now we're in, we're in kind of triage mode, trying to monitor birds as, as often as we can, determine nesting, cause of nest failures, et cetera. When they hatch, we're tracking broods. Um, but I don't do, well, this is kind of funny. I, I got into this field to do this type of work and I, I don't get to do it often because um, I'm manuscript writing. I'm trying to get money to support this research. I'm giving presentations. I'm talking to 
people like you guys and um, and my graduate students are actually doing the field work by and large. Uh, I get to go live vicariously through them sometimes, but so yeah, um, I do get the opportunity to hunt, but this is, this is certainly the busiest time of year for me. And in particular, um, people that want information, whether it be on social media or email or whatever, this is a time of year where my inbox stays pretty full constantly right now. I'm sure. I'm sure you had a little boost after uh, the Mediator podcast as well. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit. In, that was a bit insane, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Um, yeah, it, it was pretty. It was pretty insane. You're celebrity now? No, certainly not. <laughs> I, um, I, I'm still getting people contacting me about that podcast. Uh, yeah. so, I think you probably will for a while. Yeah. I mean, it was an eye-opening podcast. Yeah. And I, I appreciated Steve giving me the opportunity to, you know, to, to visit with those guys. They were very gracious hosts and they had super, super questions and, and we're willing to take the time. I mean, that was a long podcast. It, you know, we were, I think we recorded two hours and 20 some minutes or something. And, and there was, yeah. more, there was actually more, recording than that they, they cut just a little bit out but um yeah the response since that podcast has been overwhelming which is good because a lot of people have contacted me wanting to do podcasts like you guys or just with questions like hey um i've seen this or i've, I've witnessed this or i've experienced this what do you think what are your thoughts and by and large uh they're really good questions to the point where I can't answer all of them. I, I, I think I was looking at my phone before I logged on with you guys. And I think I have like 60 messages and in, through Instagram alone that I haven't responded to um, just because I don't, I don't, I just don't have time. And, and, and that's, I guess that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great that people are getting exposed to actual um, true knowledge. I think we talked about it a lot recently on podcasts, just, double downing or doubling down on biologists because you guys really don't have a hidden agenda. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately you don't have the lo loudest voice in the industry either. Well, and, and that's unfortunate too. And you're exactly right. I mean, we don't, a lot of people look at biologists and researchers with a heavy dose of skepticism because they think, you know, there, there, there's some agenda there. And in reality, by and large, what people like me, what we want is for people to see the science and to appreciate what it means to them uh, as in this case as a turkey hunter or a land manager and we are not often given opportunities to convey that knowledge and, and on the flip side a lot of us suck at doing that <laughs> yeah you know we don't we're not trained to to be active on social media we're not trained to to go and and sometimes speak to people in a way that's meaningful to where they can understand the relevance of the science without getting caught up in a bunch of rabbit holes and you know and in the weeds so to speak and i, I try i try really hard to do that to to be able to talk to people in a way where they understand the, the take home without getting too far you know in the weeds yeah layman terms goes a long ways yeah and that and that podcast was was tremendous in in providing and, and every every podcast every opportunity 
that I get is is important because it offers people that otherwise didn't know I even existed and certainly didn't know that a lot of this work was ongoing. It gives them the opportunity to hear what I have to say and what other people have to say. And, and more importantly to me, it's they recognize what's being done and how it could impact their life as a turkey hunter or a manager. Yeah. And as a biologist, what do you think the, the strangest reasoning is people have where they just don't want to listen? Do they think that you're trying to take their hunting season away? Do you, what are they like? What's the common thought of why you guys don't get the respect you should? Oh man. A number of, of reasons that I've heard through the years, you know, I've, I've had some interactions with people that, that claim, well, you're, you don't, you're not one of us type of thing. I've gotten Mm -hmm. quite a bit in the past. Well, you don't, you don't think like we do. You don't, uh, you don't understand where we're coming from. And I, I, I've gotten that before quite a bit from hunters and it, it really, it makes me laugh honestly, because I was a hunter long before I was a biologist. Yeah. You would be hard pressed to find somebody that is more fanatical about chasing animals than I am. I mean, it's, my wife will tell you, it's an absolute obsession with me to the point where I, I mean, that's all I do. That's my only hobby. I work, That's pretty much what I do. So I get that. Uh, I don't get it as much anymore, but I did a lot when I was early in my career. I think some people are just skeptical, period, of, of anything that that counters their own way of thinking. And we, as, as you know, we as human beings, we're often closed-minded. We get caught in ruts. And, and some people are just not willing to entertain the thought that they're wrong. Um, so that's typically the, the two things I hear is I'm right and you're wrong and you can't relate to, to my way of thinking. And, and that's, um, that's okay. I mean, I certainly don't mind having conversations with people that don't agree with, with what I have to say. And, and honestly, I think some skepticism, sorry, skepticism about science in general is that the take home can change. It's not black and white. It's not, you know, I I could find something out next week that contradicts something that I've published for 10 years or 20 years. And if so, so be it, you know, you, so sometimes science is a moving target. And I think, um, I think that makes people a little skeptical of scientists in general. Yeah. How dare you not just tell us exactly how to go kill the animal we're trying to find. And you must be right. (laughs) You know, or sometimes the messages change and that's just, you know, as we learn more information about what we're doing and we get better at at our jobs, we realize that, and I've had this happen to me where I've ended up publishing something that contradicts what I've published previously. And it's like, well, well, wait a minute. How can you do that? I was like, well, I was wrong. You know, Christ, I mean, 20 years ago and now with better technology (laughs) Yeah, I can, I can answer the question a little, a little more accurately. Yeah. Well, we appreciate everything you're doing and we're going to be praising all the research, not only from you, but other biologists that we kind of attach ourselves to. I think, I think it is important. Um, And it seems like, seems like you guys overall are getting more of a voice now in the industry. 
Yeah, well, it's I agree, and that, that's a positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, after listening to that podcast, it was the first time I actually went through and read um, case studies on turkey hunting. Um, yeah, it's easy to find now. So anyone listening, you can go find all the work. Um, what, what would be the best website for them to find all your personal work? We actually, myself and a colleague at Louisiana State University, that he and I work together pretty much on, on all the work that we do. He archives all everything we've ever published on his website. Um, so if you can contact me through social media or email or whatever, I can give you a link to his site. You can literally download everything we've ever published from day one decade ago through right now. Uh, some of it is, as you can imagine, is a little heavier reading than others, but I just tell people when you have a scientific article, just read the abstract, the abstract yeah. right there on the front page, just read that. And that yeah. usually, if the, if the researcher did their job, it gives you the, the take home, you know, the last few sentences are pretty much the take home. So you can just read the abstract and say, Oh, okay. They found that, um, uh, hunting activity, decreased gobbling activity by 10% or 50%. What You can just get the take home. You don't have to read the, the heavy nuts and bolts. Yeah, I got in trouble doing that, writing papers in college. So just pulling from the abstract. Told me I had to go all the way in. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Don't just pull from the abstract. In this case, it's good. It's okay. Yeah. Not, not for papers in college. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're going to get into the good stuff now. And my personal... Um, probably most shocking thing that I, I learned from you uh, was that the owls are just attacking toms. Yep. Um, I, I mean, like hundreds of questions about it. I guess my first one is, do you th like, is there a specific species of, of owl that is more apt to attack? Yeah, definitely. Great horned owls are, okay. are the primary owl. We see... Some, there is evidence that barred owls will, will kill turkeys. That's been reported before, and, and I know it has happened. But by and large, horned owls are the primary owl predator that we see. Yeah, okay. So what are, like, I mean, what are the mechanics of it? So they just – Jed seems to think that they come and talon them right in the face. From, That's my hope. My hope yeah, is that they – Dive bombing. Dive bomb tail into the face, ride it all the way down, and that kills them. My prediction is they just hit them so hard they like get like knocked out. But we'll take well, it. We'll take your word. We think what goes on is <clears throat> they they just hit them with so much force. Uh, it appears from sign at, at the kill site that they hit the bird in the tree, the and then they ride the bird to the ground. So if you can kind of visualize this, you've got a plume of feathers from the base of the tree out 30 feet away from the tree in the direction that the owl was traveling. And then once they get on the ground, you know, owls are typically what they're going to do to turkeys is they'll damage the neck or head, sometimes pulling it off completely. Oh, that is... So you, you almost always see significant trauma to the neck, to the head. And sometimes you, when you show up, the head's completely gone and you can't find it. I mean, it, it's not even there anymore. And then depending on 
the situation, sometimes they'll, they'll consume the bird. And so what owls do is they, they shred, they pull pieces of the breast tissue and leg tissue. So kind of envision the birds laying there like you were going to clean it. They skin it kind of like we do. They open it up and they will pull pieces of, of flesh off of the, the keel and around the legs and then they're gone. So you'll see, and then everything in between. I've, I've recovered birds that had almost no meat gone where like they just killed the bird and that's it. And I've had situations where they killed it and, and cleaned it pretty damn well, actually. Um, you know, legs, breast, uh, it just it just depends, but a telltale sign is is that head and neck for sure. So, like, what if an owl just decides to go rogue? Like, they can just take down a tom every morning, can't they? <laughs> like, well, they're I mean, they, so much better equipped to like the tom, and it's so weird because owl owl hoots towns will gobble at, so they're just yeah. giving themselves away to their main predator. Well, we think they do that because owl hoots are in the same frequency band. Yeah they're in the same megahertz band as a gobble. So it kind of makes sense that things that, that are in that same band would stimulate a gobble. But yeah, um, you know, owls are pretty slick too. So they can detect a bird, not only using calls, but sight. So, you know, you got a, you got a horn owl that's perched up somewhere and a turkey's gobbling. Well, you know, he's fair play, but even if he's not gobbling, I mean, the owl detects him, he could kill him. I mean, we lose hens. In fact, we just had a hen just the other day. One of the students texted me and said, um, just had one of our hens that got smoked. Um, she wasn't incubating a nest yet. So she was still, she was still roosting at night and, and it was, you know, classic owl predation. So yeah, they'll kill not only toms that, that we suspect are gobbling, but they also kill hens as well. Yeah. Um, that's, I don't have any questions on that. This is nuts. No. All right. It's, in, it's insane. I mean, horned owls are. When, when you discovered that, like, were you just like, what? <laughs> yeah. Basically, I didn't know what owl predation looked like. I mean, I, yeah. when I was a student, I'd never, I had no idea. Um, and I, I actually referenced this on that meteor podcast was, um, I had a bunch of animals that got killed in the same area and that's what clued me in. I was like, okay, so wait a minute. This is what they do when they kill these animals. They actually do this to them after they're dead. Mm -hmm. And then um, in the years since I've seen it over and over and over and I tell my students, you know, Hey, this is what an owl predation event looks like. This is what you need to be looking for. And it's funny because I've gone and talked, you know, I give talks here, pretty much all over the place now. And, and I'll have people come up, students that are at other institutions studying birds that will come up to me and say, you know what, now that you just explained that to me, I wondered what that was. I just called it, I didn't know what it was, but I had yeah. birds killed last year because of that. I had four birds killed, you know, in this area from owls. Once you explain to them what to look for, it, it's pretty, pretty easy to spot. I mean, if I walked up on a tom with its head cut off or ripped off, I would have just assumed that some hunter just did something stupid. Yeah, I got I got a guy the other day that messaged me through Instagram that that had a picture. He walked up on a Jake, dead, and the neck is just ripped to shreds. And 
Um, you could tell where the owl had stood on top of the bird. You know, obviously there was a struggle. So there were some feathers laying around and he had pulled bits and pieces of body feathers out. But he, he messaged me in a picture on Instagram. was like, what do you think? I was like, there's no doubt, man. That's, that's a horned owl that did that. So you, so would you say toms and hens are it's just kind of a coin flip, but toms tend to get hit more on the tree? Yeah, it seems to be because, and again, this is speculation on our part. Yeah. You would think it's because they're gobbling or, or have drawn attention to themselves and the owls are, you know, otherwise we would see, we would see a lot of hens being killed as well. And we don't, we, like I said, we see some occasionally, but it's, it's typically toms that are being killed. Wow. Um, so th- kind of tying into that is general, your, your general roosting theory. <clears throat> I, I really liked your post that had the actual mapping with topo yep. lines. Um, and we, where we hunt in Southwest Wisconsin, we have that really um, bluff type uh, rolling hills type areas mm-hmm. with pretty steep ravines. And um, we find that they definitely um, – roost in those ditches up in the heads of them or out at a, a point kind of looking over a giant um, ditch. I guess what explain what kind of studies you've done and then um, what topography and any, if anything else kind of goes into play with where they're roosting in hill country. Yeah. So we're just starting to really dig into the roost data now. Um, that, that thing I posted with that topography and showing the roosting patterns, we're, we're really starting to dig into that. We haven't looked at the hen data at all. We, we kind of yeah. with the toms. It does appear that in there's, as you could tell in that figure, there's a lot of variability. The same tom will, you know, he'll roost at the very tops of ridges. He'll roost mid slope. He'll roost and and drains and draws and bottoms. But but for the most part, they tend to be mid slope and up. Um, and that does make sense to me because it offers them the chance to fly down low, you know, fly to where they could be on the ridge top if they so choose. Um, but honestly, we don't see a lot of patterns at this point. And again, we're, we're, just, we're just digging into this. We've got hundreds and hundreds of data sets on times that we're going to look at. And I suspect we will see across birds that there there are some patterns. Right now, it just it almost looks like a shotgun blast. If you kind of look at some of the the roosting locations for a single bird, he's all over the place. Yeah. Um, and topography again seems to matter, but not as definitively as I would have thought, say five years ago. Yeah. If you had to pick one thing. Would you say it's the the habitat around where they're roosting, the type of tree they're roosting in, the topography nearby water? Because that's that's I that's my thoughts. That they those are all the things that come into play just from my experiences hunting. Yeah. So you broke up a little bit. So you said the habitat, the type of tree, and uh, what else? Uh, nearby water, and then uh, what else did I say? Topography. Topography, yeah. I think it really depends on where you are. So, like, uh, for instance, in lowland-type, bottomland-type areas in the deep south, water is huge. Those those are roost over water, and that makes sense to me as well because sound carries over water. 
So they attract a lot of attention at daylight, but they're also where predators can't get to them from below. So that makes sense. Um, in super mountainous areas, I've kind of noticed they, or really hilly places, they'll often roost in coves or at the, the, the points of heads, um, at least mid slope, if you will, or higher. Um, here where I'm at, kind of in the piney woods of the southeast, man, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. You'd think that they would be in these sprawling hardwoods that have lots of low-hanging branches and such. We see them roosting 60 feet up in pine trees that don't have a damn branch hmm. in the lower 40 feet of the tree. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with really where they are in their home range. If you kind of look at some of those figures I've posted, they're, they're kind of clumps of roost, if you will. Yep. Back to the same place every night, but they tend to, they have areas of their home range that they roost in. I can only speculate it's two things. One, they feel comfortable in those areas from a predation standpoint. And two, they think they're likely to interact with hens or be heard by hens in those areas. So they tend to go back to those, you know, every few days or, or what have you. Um, but again, we just, we're just starting to tease this out. It, at this time next year, uh, I have a, I have a PhD student who's actually that's part of his job is to really tease out a lot of the the gobbler data that we've got and and provide some of some of the answers to that question. That's interesting. I I, I think of a quick follow up. I don't need to go into it a ton. So we have a, a couple different farms that we hunt, and I found that over the last couple of years they've really just congregated in one area of the farm so like a 300 acre farm at one point i remember there being turkeys damn near everywhere on that 300 acres and now they've only congregated where it's it's like a 40 acre and it's a big rounding point out you know out where they can project out into pretty much a giant uh, river bottom mm -hmm. do you think that is there like, have you ever seen like reasons why they just aren't on certain parts of a farm and they just seem to favor these areas when you really just, there isn't much difference. It's normal farmland, um, normal, same type of hardwoods. I mean, well, I mean, there's not much of a difference between no, those areas. Like little. it's, that, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's hard to say. It is hard to say. I see that all over the place though. I, yeah, like why do they choose just these little pockets? Um, yeah. or the yeah. rest of these, the normal, which look, seem to appear to be this, the same area. Yeah. And, and I, I see that all over the place and, and I, I go look at habitat and I look at one place, I'm thinking, well, that looks pretty good for, for turkey yeah. and there's no birds there. Yeah. Um, I think part of it is, you know, their, their mating system, the way they, they kind of, um, they have their social groups and they, they interact with each other. I think to some degree there's there's some fidelity to certain parts of the landscape. There's just always turkeys in certain places and there have been for for decades and yep. that tends to be where they feel the most comfortable, you know, predation risk is lower, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I'm with you. I look at places all the time. I'm like, that looks just like that spot right down the road. And for whatever reason, there's not a damn turkey for, I mean, you don't hear any birds, you don't see birds and it looks like good turkey habitat. Yeah. Um, this is hard to say. 
would you say population density will at some point the higher that population density gets that kind of drives them into those other locations and then if the population density is kind of back down or lower then those places become those congregated areas oh no question yeah no question yeah and we and we've we've published some work looking at at density type effects on on populations and and it does appear that turkeys that they they function in that same vein where as density gets higher, you end up with hens that are nesting in some kind of marginal areas. They have poor success. And then as your density is lower, you, you know, there's, there's more available habitat for the birds that are there. So they, they can presumably could end up in better places than, than if there were twice as many yeah. birds. Um, I suspect there's, that is functioning at some degree and is influencing that observation you just pointed out. Um, it's just hard to know, you know, you would think the bottom line is we perceive habitat differently than this bird does. You and right. I look, look at the landscape in a way that the bird doesn't see it that way. And it's always been like that. We'll struggle with this forever. We're trying to, to, to do better at trying to understand what this bird perceives, but thus far in, in a lot of ways, we, we just don't, we don't do a good job. Bottom line. Yeah, I think, I I just think looking at those locations and some of the other farms that we hunt, it might, maybe it has something to do with the fact that the head of that um, kind of area of the farm is a wide open out into the uh, river bottom, whereas the rest of the farm has those tighter ditches, tighter hillsides. So if they're roosting on the one hillside, they have a threat not very far away on the other hillside if there is um, a predator or something, whereas if they roost in a wide open looking out into a river bottom, there isn't that threat out in front of them on the next hillside. Yeah, and you definitely, I mean, you think about roosting, the only reason a 20 pound bird sleeps in a tree is because it's afraid of being killed. Right. So out <clears throat> in the spring, they're not concerned with projecting sound or attracting attention. They're just trying to live to eat another day. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we, very likely what drives roost selection and at least for toms is i need to secure as much breeding opportunities as i can well one way of doing that is project sound and do it in a way where the environment doesn't destroy the sound before it gets to the hen and two i need to live through the night while doing this risky activity of gobbling in the tree yeah. so yeah it makes complete sense they they would they should be picking places that confer increase survival for sure yeah um do you have any information on um how springtime logging affects um reproduction rate not not really um we have logging that's on that goes on on our study sites obviously um but down here at least logging tends to be a a summer type activity when things start to dry out a little bit we we get pretty persistent spring rain events here sure so on our sites most logging is is a very late spring you know there are exceptions but very late spring summer type activity at that point our nesting is is pretty much you know over with um so we, we don't see a lot of issues with logging and, and bird, okay. other than obviously habitat changes to habitat that right. 
or it has to react to. Yeah. Yeah. We hunted a public piece that had um, been completely logged and in, in the process yeah. of being completely logged, you know? Oh and, yeah. Yeah. And when I, when we, when we came around the corner and I saw that, my first thought was, Hmm, wonder, uh, I wonder how damaging this is to, to nesting, you know? So, yeah. I mean, when you yank a thousand oak trees out of a, of woods, obviously you would think they're, um, roosting trees are going to take a hit, but overall habitat would might increase. So um, you think it would just weigh each other out? It depends. If you're, if you're talking like clear cut logging where you're removing all the stems, that's different than say a select cut where you're taking say 30% of your, your trees out. Um, that type of selective harvest is, is completely compatible with turkeys. Yeah. Because you stim, you know, you stimulate understory vegetation, which can be beneficial. The, uh, the clear cut type logging really just depends on the scale. You know, turkeys will readily use clear cuts in early successional areas like that. Um, at least down here in the deep south, the problem is that once forests are, are, are cleared, they succeed really quick. So they become really, really thick, dense. Yeah. Stuff that turkeys don't use in just a few years. That's the problem we kind of have in the deep south. So it really just, it's from a roosting perspective, if you're just removing a select number of trees, it's probably not that big of a deal. If you're clearing all the trees, obviously that is, that is more problematic. So getting into more um, <clears throat> habitat type related stuff, what, what have you seen as, if you had to just put your finger on it and uh, kind of blank map or blank canvas design a property, um, what is the habitat that you're going to put on that property or create that habitat to be? Um, you typically are going to see denser populations of birds in areas where you've got a, a mixture of forest and open habitats. Um, of those forest, obviously hardwoods are critically important to at least turkeys obviously during the fall and winter but um yeah so you know i'd be looking for a mixture of of forested areas that are large enough not a five acre wood block you know yeah. area but larger and intact take hundreds of acres of forest with open habitats that are well managed not just you know fescue fields but um early successional vegetation is managed with, with fire or disking or some type of periodic disturbance, agricultural crops, things that are going to attract uh, insects that are going to provide forage, brooding areas, those types of things. That's, that's kind of my vision of turkey habitat. Pretty much everywhere I go where I see dense populations of birds, that's, that's pretty much what you see unless you're in Texas shrub country, which by and large in a lot of ways is nothing but one big early successional <laughs> habitat. Yeah. Um, so it really just kind of depends on where you are in the country. So the insects is what drives everything. Like that's their main, that's the main driving force. Um, depending on the time of year, but yeah, like right now. Yeah. Right now. We're in April and, and <clears throat> turkeys are eating uh, insects of all varieties um, they're eating succulent green vegetation, blooms off of plants, 
uh, invertebrates, amphibians, salamanders, frog larvae, you name it. I mean, turkeys will eat damn near anything uh, that they can grab easily, and particularly if it's a lot of it. So, you know, you imagine one of the craziest things I ever saw was a hen that was walking around eating tadpoles in Mississippi. She literally, I, I caught this bird, and when I did, um, her crop was completely stoked with, I watched her for, for about 20 minutes, dip her head in this puddle and suck up frog larva. <laughs> um, and then I shot a rocket net over and, and she was literally, I mean, it would just choked full of these things. Um, so turkeys are, they'll eat all sorts of stuff, but this time of year, I'm thinking green stuff and bugs. Yep. Yeah. Um, so in that blank canvas of habitat that you would create just for turkey habitat, what does it look like um, in the woods, habitat in the woods to improve the survival rate of nesting? And, and this was kind of the shocking Instagram post I saw that you actually disproved your previous thought where um, more, more thick vegetation would improve your nesting, but you actually found that it, it had no bearing on it. Yeah, that's right. So basically what we found is um, if there is a link between cover and nest success, we haven't found it. Basically, yeah. what we measure at these nests, we're either measuring the wrong things or we're looking at the process wrong. The bottom line is more cover isn't better for, for increasing success. Now, this is southern birds, mind you. These are all birds in the southern part of the country. But but what we see is that um, sometimes nests that are in the wide open hatch and sometimes nests that are in the thickest crap you could find hatch. And then sometimes in both of those scenarios, they fail. And the problem is that most nests fail regardless. So we're losing about 80% of our clutches a year in the South. It doesn't matter what's growing there. They, they all fail. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, if you think about it from a from a predation standpoint, you know turkeys. Their number one sense of, of predator avoidance is their sight. So here's a bird that has a periscope for a head, and they need to be able to see. So mm -hmm. I'm starting to think that we've looked at nesting wrong. I'm starting to wonder in my own head whether this bird is supposed to be able to nest in places where they can also see to where the vegetation is not so thick that they can detect predators approaching them. Um, maybe what I thought, let's just say mid thigh is too tall. Maybe it needs to be knee or below. Um, and if that's the case, then we've kind of looked at nesting cover through a wrong lens. And I, I'm not blaming others. Maybe it's just Mike that's looking at it wrong. But I, I've always thought more was better. And it may, if this, if they need to be able to see from their nest sites, then that would explain some of the really wonky places we see birds nest. I call it wonky. Maybe they don't see it as that. Um, yeah, middle of alfalfa field here all the time. Yeah, or, or we see them all in all sorts of instances in a hardwood, like just leaf litter crisis. There's nothing yeah. up against the base of a tree and they'll hatch. 
it's like, well, how is that possible if cover matters? Um, I think ultimately it boils down to the bird needs to be able to see. And, and we generally don't, at least in the southern U.S., a lot of what's happened to our landscapes are counter to a bird being able to see. We don't, we don't disturb forests like we used to. We don't manage forests like we used to. We don't use fire the way we used to. People don't, if you think like farming, you know, farming has changed so dramatically in the United States. It, it's, it's mechanized to the point where we, we don't have brushy, shrubby, dense areas that are poorly maintained because people didn't have time to go weed eat a fence row. You know, that stuff's gone. I got, that gets bulldozed now. <laughs> yeah. So one big we, field. Yeah. So we, you know, we see areas that don't, that don't have vegetation that the turkeys select anymore. And so, yeah, to your, your point, I, I, I'm leaning more now as I age and think about the data that we see that sight is much more important than I thought it was years ago. We've known that for years with broods. Yeah. Since we know that broods go to open areas and, and we know why. But I'm beginning to think that, that even nesting birds, at least to some degree, sight may be more important than just, I want to hide. Do you think that they would prefer then like side or back cover, similar to like how deer bed? Yeah, we do want... see that there that we do see that that most nests are tucked up against something. They're yeah. tucked up against a tree or uh, a shrub or, or something that offers some concealment. Shade, if it's in an open area where it's hot, shade is important because turkeys they have to maintain egg temperature that's within a range. And if it gets too hot or it gets too cold, then that forces her to leave the clutch more often or sit on the clutch more. So this bird's trying to pick spots that balance air, you know, ambient air temperature as well, because if it gets too hot, she has to leave. And if it gets too cold, she has to stay. So, so yeah, they're, they, they're usually putting a backdrop against something. Uh, and we all, also see that in a lot of cases, not all, in a lot of cases, there's usually some way of getting out of the nest pretty easily, you know, a trail, a path or something where she, in that sense, where she can get away from, from something that's attacking her. Yeah. Um, do you have any question on that? Yeah. So if uh, line of, or if sight is their first line of defense and smell is way low, on their lines of defense. How many generations do you think it's going to take for smell to come into play and effectively end turkey hunting with a shotgun? Oh no, that's not that's not going that's to happen. Not, that's this, not gonna happen. Not in my no, life. The, no, this bird this bird has through time has adapted to using its sight and its ears as they don't have hearing that's the same as ours. Um, but in combination with if you watch turkeys, when they, uh, when they use their eyes, they also turn their head. And if you put the combination of that hearing, which is extremely acute, as you know, and they have an incredible sense of place, they know where sounds come from. You put that combined with their eyesight and they don't need to smell. Um, they, they, thankfully for us, cause hell, you'd never kill one if they could right. smell like a deer it's ball game for us, but 
but uh, no, they they don't they don't use a sense of smell. Thinking about it as as human beings, would. right, right, it's mostly a, a hearing and a sight issue. So it's arrogant to think sure, that you're okay. You're okay. Don't worry. <laughs> right. So so it would be arrogant to think that we as hunters would change uh, the bird's biology, I guess, um, when nothing has done it for hundreds. At of least dollars. not not this. Yeah. No. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it that's not something that could just develop. We haven't been hunting this bird the way we're hunting it for very long. Right. Yeah. In an evolutionary sense, what we've done is it means nothing. I mean, if you think about it across what shaped this bird through through millennia, it, we're we're our hunting the last thirty years isn't part of that. <laughs> how uh, how old is the turkey species? Good gosh, I, I can't even without citing a text. I can't even okay. remember when the fossil records date back to, but they've been around a while. Yeah, a good while. Yeah, yeah. If you look <laughs> at them too, I mean, no, Wisconsin they got planted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, you know, we have we have birds in all sorts of areas now that uh, that they weren't historically at, uh, which. It owes to the biologists and managers that have worked their tails off to restore the bird. Yeah, I know we could we could probably talk a whole episode on just nesting, but trying to move along the life of a turkey, <clears throat> the next stage of ha- like if habitat or what is the biggest um, determining factors on survival um, once they are alive and that year or so until they become an adult. What are the main things that if you're a habitat, um, if you own your own property, how can you help the turkey survive that year after they're born? Once they're hatched, brood habitat becomes money. That is, we, we see a, a really heavy loss of broods in the spring and summer. Um, in the south, we lose about two-thirds of our broods to production. So um, think habitat that is managed that's open that has overhead cover um pastures uh shrublands things that are disturbed that have cover they can sneak under that have green vegetation that has a lot of bugs in it um that's that's absolutely critical brood habitat is is critical also you need places where uh, broods can loaf. Broods spend a lot of time foraging, but they also spend some time hanging out. So you need places that are close. That's that's one thing we found that's really critical to brood survival. If you have birds that hatch, that have to travel far distances, think 900,000 yards at a time to get from a nesting location to good brood habitat, those broods suffer much greater mortality than other broods. So you need to be thinking about, I know that looks like nesting cover over there. Where can I look on my property or my neighbor's property? Where could I create and manage what I think looks like good brood habitat? Because you don't want the bird to have to travel. So if they can hatch and they can move short distances and brood, that's what you want. Beyond that, once they get to be about a month old, they're in pretty good shape. They, they can flush, they can escape predators or roosting in trees at that point. We don't see, well, I'll be honest with you, man, 
we don't understand what happens to a lot of these birds from the time they're about a month old until we catch them in the winter. Um, that's a bit, excuse me, of an unknown in the turkey world because we don't have a way of really doing a good job of tracking them when they're that age. We can't catch them and put transmitters on them that give us the type of data we want when they're that, when they're that little. We're, we're starting to, to test some things that'll be pretty cool that I think are gonna be, I'm really excited about actually, that we could get some of that data. Uh, so think about catching them when they're about the size of a chicken and marking them um, and their attending hen with some tags that would last for a long time. Dang, that'd be fascinating. Yeah, we're working on that now. Um, but once we get to that stage, they, we think they're pretty good. And then it's just winter habitat. It's acorns on the ground. It's, it's big chunks of hardwood forest if you've got it. And if you don't have big chunks and you only have small pieces or linear you know, areas where you, corridors and areas like that that have oaks, try to maintain your, your oaks on your property. Um, a lot of people will ask me, well, are you saying don't cut oak trees? Nope, I'm not saying that. In some cases, you can actually stimulate acorn production by removing some of your oaks. I tell people, you know, if you, you got big chunks of hardwood, find a forester, consult with a forester and, yeah. and have them take a look at your property and see, in some cases, cutting some hardwoods can actually stimulate your remaining hardwoods. Uh, it also can increase some ground cover, which produces bugs and vegetation. So, so yeah, uh, once I get through the brooding period, then I'm usually thinking about winter habitat. Yeah. Um, so we're moving now they're becoming adults or, and by the way, thank you for putting an end to the aging of a Turkey. So <laughs> that was something that has really pissed me off. I mean, there, I just, there was no goddamn way you're going to tell me that a, that a bird is four years old or something. Um, yeah, but, no, we, we, I won't go back down that cause I, I know <laughs> people have listened to that enough, but, but yeah, I mean, do you think that upset people the most about something that you've said is that, that they're at the, all the years they think they've been killing three-year-old birds or four-year-old birds that they're just wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've got a little hate mail over that. <laughs> Um, I mean, I was kind of in that, I kind of assumed that big inch and a half pointy spur meant that's meant something, but. And, yeah. you know, and, you know, and if you look back at, at old text, in fact, I was reading one today, you know, they, they had known age birds that they, like we do, that they kind of used to, to come up with those guidelines, but having now caught and banded thousands and thousands of birds and seen them killed and reported, there's just, those, that's just wrong. You, you can't look at a spur and definitively say that's how old he is. Now what you can do, uh, there's, some, there's some stuff that's been done years ago showing if you basically take a radiograph of a cross section of the spur that you can kind of, you can back your way into age classes pretty good but nobody's going to do that. I mean, you know, that takes too much time and expense. And so, but yeah, you're, you know, you're not going to look at a spur and, and convince me or anyone else that has done this for a living that you're looking at a two or a three or a four year old. Yeah. There's just no way of knowing. 
is this a myth or is there some truth to it that um, I would always kind of assume that those three to five grouped up toms that seem to act a little crazier than the lone one generally were sometimes the last year's Jake's that just hung together. Is there any, any yeah. proof to that? Yeah, there, yeah, there is some, there is, there's some evidence showing that, that a lot of times those ended up, those Jake's grew into two-year-olds and they're super aggressive. A lot, most of the time they're related to each other or, they grew up together. Um, so they've been around, you know, like you said, just four or five birds. They've been around together for, for a while. And they're they're constantly bickering and pissing and moaning towards each other because mm-hmm. just testing those hierarchies constantly. Um, yeah. And then that, that group of birds just ages together. And, of course, some of them die. Some of them get shot, et cetera. And, and then you end up with the old dude, in some cases, the old dude that is by himself that, has just survived through the years. Sometimes that's a, an old bird. Sometimes it's just a young bird that has been, uh, his, his siblings have been shot or killed or, or he was just by himself to begin with. And yeah, see that sometimes. That makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, as a hunter, so we'll get into the hunting side of stuff. What can we do? And do, like, how much damage are we doing um, to the population? I personally think we have a dramatic difference in population. Like from where it was five years ago to what I've experienced hunting this year is um, like I'm starting to become I'm starting to become worried personally. I think that we have an absurd amount of tags that people can get. Um, and I know you mentioned, I guess the first part of it is kind of going into why um, early season and killing Tom's early season can affect um, the population so much. Yeah. Um, so it's a, that's a tough question, man. And, and you know, you, it's not a hunting problem per se. And, and I, I certainly don't want, you know, I'm a turkey hunter myself and, and yeah. I think we have to be careful um, amongst ourselves. We know this bird is facing a lot of problems. I think what what we're very likely seeing in some places is that how we're harvesting the bird could be contributing to some of the issues that we're seeing. And, And those are, you know, predation, habitat loss, fragmentation, disease issues, all these things that we know are affecting turkeys. Um, it's very likely that, that our own activities are contributing to some of those issues, which is what we covered, you know, at length and on that meat eater podcast. And, and I've talked you know, since to others about it. The, the timing issue, man, it really, it, it boils down to two things. It's not just a timing issue. It's a, it's a harvest rate, you know, mm-hmm. If you go into a population and take a couple of toms out early, you're, hard, you're taking a real small percentage. It very likely means nothing. But if you're going into a population and you're removing a, a segment of the birds, you know, a chunk of your males before breeding is occurring or while it's occurring, that has to have at some 
at some level an effect on the population. We just don't know exactly what that is. And, and I tell people, you know, a lot these days, we base a lot of what we think we know about harvest on work that was done many years ago. Mm-hmm. And that work was not flawed. That work is foundational type work. But turkey populations back in the 1980s and 1990s didn't function like they do now. They are not as productive. We see lower survival rates of adults. We see lower nest success. We see poor brood survival. And we see that we are killing more of this bird in many cases at what is very likely a more efficient rate than we did 30 years ago. We have tools, we have technology, we have things available to us that make us much more efficient hunters than we did years ago. I just got asked this the other day uh, about mapping systems and decoys. And when I grew up turkey hunting, or even when I was a and when I got married, there was no such thing as a decoy that looked like a turkey. They looked like crap. Um, yeah, the foam. Yeah, the fold-up thing you rolled up in your pants pocket. Mm-hmm. And they were so ugly, I didn't use them. And and you just stuck a call. I just stuck a call in my pocket and went hunting. And and I killed birds, but there were a lot of birds. And, you know, I look now at my own self. And I see a truck seat full of decoys. I see calls out the wazoo. I see shot shells that, that you know, are crazy. And, and I see all these things that we have developed to, to harvest this bird. And if you take all of that together and wrap all of that in one package, it's not a hunting issue, but hunting is, is very likely contributing to it. And nothing that's ongoing for this bird in general is positive. I mean, nothing that's changed in the past 30 years could I look at and say, that's good. Like, that has benefited this this species. It's actually been the the opposite. So when when people ask me the question you just asked, I, I, I respond by saying, okay, we have to be careful here. But... If you look at how we harvest this bird, um, what we're doing really, uh, if we're taking a large percentage of the males in the spring, has to have some effect. Yeah. What effect is it? And how do we, you know, what what's a better way of doing it? You know, Steve asked me on that Meat Eater podcast, he's like, well, do we hunt in the summer? I was like, no. Uh, the answer is to to time our seasons and our bag limits and our harvest strategies in a way that focus on this bird and not ourselves. Uh, That's going to take all of us giving some skin, putting some skin in the game. And I look at myself and I think, well, you know, what could I do differently? Well, you know what? I don't need to hunt as long. If, If you tell me that, that doing this will help, if, if you say, hey, if we were to cut this season a little bit and we were, to, we were to be a little more judicious with our tags and our quotas and our bag limits, that that's going to help. Speaking personally, it's a no-brainer. Um, if you're asking me, yes. 
I'd be willing to do damn near anything at this point to reverse the trends that I see around the South anyway, which is, you know, pretty alarming. I mean, we, we are not producing the number of birds that we're killing. That's the bottom line. We're not, we're not producing birds at a landscape scale like we did 30 years ago. And therefore the ways, the mindset that we had years ago in regards to how we hunt this bird and how we harvest this bird, in my opinion, don't apply anymore because those populations aren't functioning like they did back then. We're in a new normal now. And, and I think we need to be a little more proactive in how we go about our business, because if we don't, we are very likely going to look back through time and say, well, we should have tried, you know, we should have done something a little different than what we're doing. Um, and I see on a positive side, I see a tremendous amount of momentum. I, I talk to people every day like you that perceive a problem. They don't know exactly what it is, and, but they, they see habitat issues. They see predation issues. They see disease issues. They see hunting issues. They see all these things that are kind of racked up against this bird. And they almost uniformly, when, they, when I talk to people, they're like, let's do something. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's make a change. Let's, let's figure out, uh, let's listen to the research. And if, if it requires us to change how we, how we conduct ourselves, then so be it. And of course you, you get some people and I get it that are, it's like, well, no, I'm, I'm not interested in doing that. And I do, I respect people that disagree. I mean, we all have our own opinions, but I kind of look at this as, if the science tells me that what we're doing needs to be tweaked, then so be it. And if, if we find out down the road that we helped, then great. And if we didn't, then we at least took a try. At least we tried. Yeah. Would you, would you, if you had to put your finger on the one thing that's changed so much in 30 years, obviously hunting popularity has increased a ton. Um, is it something to do with the fact that we just don't have that disturbance in the, in our ecosystems as much? We don't have the fire that never ha that it never happens. I mean, you come around our woods around here, and people have that logged ten years ago, and now it's just a big canopy with no, nothing on the floor, and they're just waiting for their next timber harvest. Is that the kind of stuff that do you think is leading to more of this, or is it just the turkeys evolving? They're just not doing as well, or what do you no, think? There, no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean. Yeah, there have been landscape level changes in forest management, timber harvesting regimes, um, you know, agriculture, all these things that influence this bird. It's it's not just one thing. I, I I've said this many times. I'll say it here. It's death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. You know, this this bird is is suffering. You can't really put your finger on one thing. It's not one thing. It's a number of things that are kind of accumulating against this bird and not just turkeys you know if you look uniformly across species that are adapted to disturbed forest grassland early successional type habitats bobwhite quail um, you know woodcock species that use areas that are disturbed in a lot of areas not doing well either um, mm -hmm. a lot of your early successional songbirds, populations are tanking, insect communities, there's all sorts of growing science showing that we're, we're losing insects at an alarming rate. 
well, Christ, you got a bird that eats insects for part of its annual cycle. That's not a positive, you know? And so, yeah, to your point, from a habitat perspective, there are very few things I can put my finger on and say, this is helping compared to what it was 30 years ago. By and large, it's these things are, are affecting the bird negatively and, and we're trying to kind of work around you know, those issues. And one thing to think about, man, I, I think about it a lot is, you know, most turkeys live on private land. Yeah. Um, most of our birds aren't influenced by public land management. So it really boils down to us as, as yep. landowners and, and stewards of the, of the properties we have access to or that we can manage. We have to do better because most birds are impacted by our, our management, not what agencies are doing. Yeah, and disturbance is just giving a shit and spending some time and taking care of it, and probably well, and being educated on it too, probably because yeah, that and having you know, resources to do it. Yeah, yeah, the guy yeah, that got yeah. pitched all that money to to log his woods and wants it again. I, you know, you can't really blame them. They're just not educated on it. Well, that and you know, you, if you look in a lot of in a lot of places, um, families where. Um, family members have passed and mm -hmm. they may have managed their property a certain way. It gets divided up across four kids. Those four kids live four States away. They're not interested in that property and, and, and they shouldn't be, they, they have their lives elsewhere. Uh, so I get it. They, they're interested in economics or in selling the property or in whatever. And, and I see this a lot in the deep South. I see, ownership patterns changing and a lot of properties that would have been managed a certain way 30 years ago may not even be in that family any longer. They're managed differently. Um, and as that changes, it generally in, in a lot of cases doesn't benefit wild turkeys or a lot of other critters as well. Yeah. I mean, I really hope our, um, our younger generation that's coming up right now, we do a better job of, of taking care and, appreciate it more i feel like sometimes you know looking at my own family's land where there wasn't as much appreciative value on land because they it was just what they grew up with whereas yeah. we were yeah. we didn't have it we don't have it a lot of people in my generation know so hopefully it starts swinging back where there's just more care um done um yeah, how, old, how old are you i'm 26 how old are you you're old 30 30 yeah Jeez. Yeah, so I'm I'm 48. So you're 26. You're you are the stewards of the resource. I mean, your age. Yeah. Your, your age of this of our turkey hunting turkey management society. You're the ones that are part of this turkey hunting craze. You're you're the ones that are part of of the changes that we've seen. You're mm -hmm. all going to have to be the ones that drive the change because you are a huge demographic in the turkey hunting community right now. Um, people, you know, my dad's age, 70s, they, they don't hunt anymore. They had a different land ethic than, like you just pointed out, than, than you guys do. And you are going to have to drive a lot of, if, if there are going to be changes, it's going to have to come from your voice and from your, your generation of turkey hunters and managers because there's only so much my generation can say. Um, and the generation that's beyond me, they're, they're 
failing, you know, they're, they're falling out of the turkey hunting ranks because of their age. So you guys are going to have to pick the torch up and be the ones that go to legislators that become the squeaky wheel that speak, you know, that tell the bird story that tells the importance of the resource because you are most turkey hunters now, and you're going to continue to be most turkey hunters in the future. So you're going to have to be the ones to do it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we gotta we gotta pick it up. That's for sure. Um, yeah, we we just bought the first property um, last month, so hopefully one of many. <laughs> well, good luck with it. I I wish yeah. I I wish I was a landowner myself. I'm I'm not I'm not. But um, well, you've done your share. <laughs> well, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm impacting acres through different means. I guess lot of them yeah um so we don't want to keep you forever we've we've run pretty long i would say the one last question because because i'm a weather nerd is uh your comment about barometric pressure um so i guess kind of outline this i know you had an instagram post recently on it so you 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 kind of go off of what the standard is for this time and then the increase of a certain amount you see just an increase in gobbling and that's yeah, so, also somewhat of an explanation for the those bright sunny clear days where you're just like how the hell is there no gobbling right now and it might just because the pressure's low yeah 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 so and there's something important about that that post people ask us a lot about weather and gobbling and yeah and it does matter we all know that weather matters but what we do see is that relative to hunting activity and nesting activity of hens. It doesn't mean much. In, in other words, those two things drive gobbling activity, but when you when you ignore those two and you look at weather, barometric pressure does matter. So that figure showed basically, if you take an, an average barometric pressure for a day, mm-hmm. the pressure is going to, if it's rising, you should logically expect to hear a pretty good increase in gobbling activity. If on the other hand, it's falling relative to the average, then it kind of tanks. Um, and that that jives with what you just said. If You know, you have these days like, I cannot believe they're not gobbling today, it's beautiful. Well, it could just be that partially at least that you've got pressure changes that cause the bird to change how they're behaving um, and I'll be honest, we don't understand weather in this bird. We, there's so much that weather could influence, not just like gobbling, but like testosterone levels and changes in hormones that weather can affect that we know in other critters that it could affect turkeys. We just don't understand how it, it's so hard to study it. Um, and the problem sure. with weather, man, is weather is so, you know this, you go hunt on a piece of property and you read AccuWeather or something and you get to your property and it I hate AccuWeather. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't jive with what you see. Well, the problem is that we measure weather like AccuWeather does. We use the only data we have access to are like NOAA stations and stuff where Yeah, the the history data. Yeah, it may be 40 yep. miles from our birds. Um, yeah. So we do have some, some of that work that I showed in that figure was actually using weather data on site. 
So right there where the birds were gobbling. Um, and we're going to try to do a little bit better job of that in the future to collect data that would be like on your farm where your birds are gobbling, where we can do a better job at teasing out the weather. But um, we saw the same thing with wind, you know, which I haven't shown yet, but I will that um, as you would expect, when wind picks up, gobbling declines. The interesting thing there is we don't know if it actually declines or whether they, we just can't hear the, the technology can't I'm hear. I'm just it. gonna say that. I was like, yeah, and you know it's what's not crazy? Like we'd be able to hear it anyways. Yeah, but you know, hunting western birds, like I've watched Rios gobble and I couldn't hear them. Yeah, you know because the, the wind was blowing so damn hard, the sound was traveling away from me. I, 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 I didn't hear anything, but I watched his head. I know he was gobbling, so. I don't know. The wind is a, l a little trickier, but otherwise we didn't, we haven't seen a lot of weather stuff. Temperature doesn't seem to matter unless it gets super cold. Yeah. Um, and even then you see really high gobbling sometimes. On cold. Hey, we killed one. We killed one 18 degrees on Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. Best day so far. Yeah. I've actually been, I've been a uh, skunk so far personally. Got a day left in the season. Yeah, um, me too. I haven't, I haven't killed one either. I, uh, to go off of wind, do have you ever? Do you think there's anything truth to this that turkeys want to roost on the leeward side of a hill? So that the wind, they're so they're getting some wind wind blockage there. Yeah, I don't think there's any question. And when you have really windy areas, the wind prone areas, um, I have seen that birds will they they will roost in areas that I suspect offers them that protection. There've been some other studies, older studies many years ago, looking at that, showing that there appeared that it was obvious they're trying to protect themselves from weather. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. Uh, I would do, yeah, because you know, it was like, north, say like a north-south running field with, with you know, the, the ridge tops falling off the side. Um, with a west wind one day, will it, will it roost on the east or leeward side of the hill? And then with, you know, if the wind swaps and runs east, did that turkey flip? Um, sides of the field and be protected i i had a theory and i've been trying to lock that one down for a while i can't really stick it because then one will gobble right on right where they're getting smacked in the face with wind in the morning and yeah yeah like, yeah yeah <clears throat> it's, hard, it's hard to say and we don't get honestly we don't get a lot of wind down here and then when we do it's storm events it's not just prevailing winds that are high so that wouldn't show up in our data uh, yeah well, when are you coming up here to do some uh, tests? Find I, got me, like, I have like 300 different ones I can write down we can get going on. <laughs> yeah, find me a, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars here and there, and, and, um, and we can make it work. <laughs> <laughs> couple, okay, well, 200 then? or, or <laughs> uh, A five-year study is about three-quarters of a million dollars. So, yeah, that's about what we need to do a good five-year all right well i'll work on that um, yeah you go to wisconsin dnr and you you get that and, and i'll be there for sure. so you can do private funding too or we do yeah yeah well, most money i'm gonna i'll hold i'll hold you to this it might take me five years but <laughs> well i'm gonna start a gofundme tomorrow i'll probably be here so. <laughs> jed do you have any do you want any you have any interesting questions like a hen I no I'm, I'm more into the jakes um, are, are you above shooting Jake's and, oh yeah. And does it have an effect on, 
I guess would it be smarter to shoot a Jake or a Tom if you wanted to save the population? Yeah, the answer to that is no. Um, don't shoot a Jake to save a Tom because those Jakes, I get this question a lot. Um, those Jakes are your future. You know, those are your future breeders. Those Jakes are going, and this is important to think about. It's not just a numbers game, it's a social game. So that group of Jakes that you see out there being a pain in the ass and, and you know, harassing people and, and jumping on your decoys, that's your future social group of Toms. That's your, that's your future lek, if you will. That's yeah. your birds that's going to attract your hens. That's going to be your breeders. So don't, don't shoot them to save a Tom. That's, you know, that's cutting your nose off to spite your face. Um, so yeah, as far as me shooting Jake's, I have shot Jake's in my, as I'm sure almost every turkey hunter that's killed a, a number of birds has. I've, I've killed Jake's in the past. I honestly don't recall the last time I shot a Jake. It's been 15 plus years, probably. Um, I, I no longer shoot Jake's. I, I just choose not to. I, I certainly don't fault people that do. Well, you just wrecked Jed's life. Well, no, not really. You is is your is is your uh are your choices to not shoot Jake's personal or scientific or a mix? Probably a mix. Both. Yeah. Um percent what would you give the percentages to? <laughs> uh, mostly it's just my personal my personal. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, but he just said he wouldn't recommend it as a scientist. Yeah, no, I mean, if if your objective is to kill, a he person, likes shooting Jakes, but he also said before we got on, if you told him not to, he might stop. <laughs> um, well, I will say this: think about it like this. So, if your objective is to tag a bird, right? If you if you just yeah. tag a bird, then if a Jake is legal, who am I or anyone else? that's a hunter or anyone who's to tell you that that's wrong. It's legal. You have a tag, the state of whoever says that it's okay. Um, fine. Shoot that Jake. If however, your objective is to, um, is to shoot that bird in, in some way, hoping that it's going to prevent the loss of a Tom, and improve the population in the future, that's nonsensical. Um, if, if you are kind of the, and I, I know people like this, um, you know, Jake's walk up there and if there's a tag left to burn, he or she's going to tag it and that's fine. But do recognize that those Jake's, particularly if they're in, if they're in groups where they've been hanging around together for, months as that's usually the case that is your future group of toms that's that's your guys that are going to be ruling the roost for a number of years and we think that it's already pretty impactful the way that we kind of dissolve these groups of toms through time if you think about it so like you got these three or four birds that are related and you go kill one and then a few weeks later you kill another one and then the next year you kill another one and they're gone. That group of Jakes is going to replace that group of Toms. So if you start 
dissolving that group of jakes while they're still less than a year old, you are without question at some point affecting your future. If you think well, about yeah, I, um, I blame myself now. Oh, I've shot jakes. In fact, well, I, we've shot, kill a couple out of a group here and there. That's, are you going to, are you going to shoot jakes now? I see him. Th- I see him thinking. I yeah. I can see the smoke blowing out of. Him. I feel guilty right now because I remember at least the last couple of years, a couple of different hunts where we've definitely. They always come in groups, and then you have multiple tags, and you know it's just unfortunate. And look, look, I will say this, and and this is a this is a slippery slope. We have to, as hunters, we can't we can't we can't look at each other's actions if they're legal. Cast judgment. When you start, yeah, oh yeah, for that, sure. When we start doing that, we undermine ourselves. Um, what we have to do is we have to. This is not a hunter issue, it, and it should not be a discussion about should we harvest a jake or not. It should be about working with agencies to design harvest strategies that make the most sense, and if that includes the harvest of jakes fine if it doesn't then it doesn't and that's what this is about this can't be about us critiquing each other ourselves because we're in this fight together all of us and we want the same thing we all want more turkeys and we want we want to be able to hunt this bird for for generations to come and uh and so that's the way i look at it i try not to I I entertained your question because I knew where you were headed. Um, I was asked the same question the day before yesterday by someone, and I said the same thing, that, no, I don't personally shoot jakes, but I don't care if you do or not. If the state tells you it's legal, fine. I am not going to cast judgment on you. If you ask me about the biology behind it, I'll explain it the way I just explained it, that that is your future breeder at some point. Um, But we got to make this about making our harvest regulations be in line with the biology of the bird. Yeah. And if that, if that contains a provision where you take some jakes at a small percentage, which is usually what you see. I mean, you don't see, you know, by and large, you don't see jakes taken at a high rate. Uh, we, we have very few that are killed banded birds that are shot. And if you look across States, I mean, like in Georgia here, I, I looked just a little while ago, it was like, less than 10% of the statewide harvest at, as of right now was Jake's. I believe it was either right at 10% or right under it. So, you know, that, that's not a, a tremendous number of birds, but I mean, here, say right now in Georgia, that's about a thousand turkeys. That's about a thousand toms across the state um, that I know for sure will not be a breeder. Yeah. Because they're not going to age old enough to become a breeder. That's the way I kind of look at it myself. And that's the reason years ago, I've, and, and now I'm sitting here thinking, I can distinctly recall the last Jake I shot. Um, it would have been around 2006 or seven. And after that, I just kind of decided, you know, if I can't shoot a Tom, I just won't shoot a bird. And, and sometimes that's had me eating tags. <laughs> Tag soup, um, but I've also been with hunters. In fact, I've, I've called a pickup for a, a, a 
hunter once and and he was tickled to death with it to the point of he was almost in tears and i was like hell yeah man that's what it's about so uh i think we have yeah. to make this about making our harvest regulations make sense and not putting our own moral you know our more i call it moral compass putting our own moral compass on each other yeah and we yeah don't get us wrong we um we aggressively support the shooting of Jake's maybe even a little bit too much because it, I do, you don't want people to feel guilty about killing something and just go buy a tag is the most important thing. But I think for us, for me, I probably will try to not do it now. I'm thinking <laughs> this guy, he, I mean, he, this, this was more of an attack on him cause I wanted to see, cause he, he just said recently that he might want to shoot jake's over tom's anyways so well i you know i get this i get this question quite a bit um in fact by well-meaning people like that are legitimately concerned about well hey i heard about about removing tom's too early i'm concerned about that yeah what if i shot a jake instead or shot all three of my birds were jakes instead and i i, I try to convey the same thing to them that if if you think about it, doing that at, at a high rate would would literally be cutting your nose off to spite your face. Um, here and there, high rate. Yeah, I mean, it, it, like the more that I think about it, the more short sighted it is. You know, because if if you think about like if you think about it in the way of not ruining ruining the ladder for this year, then yeah, it would make perfect sense. But the fact that um most eggs that are laid don't hatch the fact that it's there is a miracle don't ruin it you know that makes even more sense the more you yeah, think. Yeah, if they survive to be a jake you should let them live another right. year yeah let, yeah exactly yeah and and kind of think about it like this you know those social hierarchies if you, if you go into a group of toms and you you take one tom big deal you know if it's yeah. before breeding that's probably not good if you and and like right now we're what it's April the twentieth, we're in the peak. We're right in throes of nesting here in Georgia. I would not hesitate if if a group of three toms came and I hope I'm this damn lucky to actually have a group of three toms this year. But if three toms came up, there would not be a fiber in my body that would hesitate to harvest one. But in Georgia, I could shoot all three. Would I consider doing that under no circumstances? Because taking one piece of that ladder out, that can be fixed. Taking the whole ladder out, the ladder's gone. So if you kind of think about it in, that, in those types of veins, you know, keeping intact social groups until it's time to breed, that's important. And we know it's important. And those social groups are those Jakes. That's that. That's that group again. That's your. That's your breeders in the future. That's the group of Toms that have made it. Let's just. We see a lot around here. It's like four or five or six or something like that. Man, those six birds. Let's say there's six. Those six birds had defied all odds to make it to that point. That group of six is going to be your six breeder Toms, knowing that all of them are not going to be breeders. 
So of those six jakes, until they're two years old, they mean nothing to the population. They have no hopes of mm -hmm. anything to the population. So if we don't let them age until then, they've contributed nothing, really. Um, so to me, keeping those hierarchies intact, that means something to me. So I, I kind of, you know, and I didn't know anything about, I mean, I knew hierarchies existed back in 2006 or seven or whenever, but not, I don't, I didn't think about it like I do now. Uh, it wasn't as impactful. Oh, it's completely eye-opening to, to us. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I try to think God about damn. that. Man, he's messing up all our hunts. He can't kill any more triple kills on video. Look, I was part of a triple Jake harvest one time. It was one of the, still to this day, one of the more memorable hunts I've ever been on. Um, it was a grind, tough, tough hunt. We were frustrated. And it was three of us, and we shot those birds, and we – I still to this day relish that hunt. That was, that was one of, they gobbled, which made it even better. And we were on public land and we had worked so hard and we were so blessed to be able to take the birds. It didn't matter whether it was a Jake or three of the biggest toms you've ever seen. Yeah. We had just put in four days of hell. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what we came and out. That's what they're good for. Yeah. We came out with, with a bird, and we ate fried turkey that night and we were just as tickled as we could be. And I still look back because my dad was with me. I look back on that hunt and I'm like, you know what? I wouldn't change a damn thing I did that day. If I could go back and do it right now, given the circumstances, I would defy my own personal ethic and I'd shoot that Jake because of what I know that hunt became. Yep. But by and large, you know, no, I don't. Yeah. Anymore. Well, I'm gonna, Sorry, I'm gonna put some I'm gonna put some uh, blame on you here. So I had my I had a hunt Wednesday morning, opening day of Wisconsin, and three birds came into the decoys five yards away. It was supposed to be a double. I have a tag and the person with me has a tag. I'm blaming you because I didn't take my safety off. So two of those did not die, only one died. Will you take that blame for me? Yes. <laughs> okay. I appreciate yes. that. So actually yes. I didn't take my safety off on purpose and uh, yes. it's all a ruse. Yes. I've done the hierarchy. same thing. I've, I've done the same thing and I've, I've actually, um, I've been in situations where I could have legally harvested multiple birds with a single shot. And I've not done that intentionally because there were only two birds in the group and I just didn't feel comfortable doing that knowing that I would be hypocritical. I mean, I, I can't really sit here and explain to people what the science says and then turn around and do the exact opposite. So, yeah. um, no, you can absolutely lay blame on me and I'll, I will take it 100%. <laughs> well, I think it's important to think about there. I mean, once you, you know, you're like, especially us, we're in 10 years of killing turkeys we probably, we can instill some ethics in, in how we harvest them where you don't really think about it as much with turkey hunting. You know, you think about it as deer hunting where you, you don't want to kill a four-year-old or three-year-old, whatever it is, your cutoff is. But we, we probably could do better. You know, the longer you've been in it, you don't 
it's not the end of the, it's not the most exciting thing in the world. When you kill one, you might be able to let some go the longer you're in it. (laughs) I think that's mainly what has kind of triggered my different thought now, just from listening to you. Well, and I, I appreciate that. And, and I, I will say this, you know, I have seen myself that there's almost a, there's almost a craze in some, some situations to kill this bird. Um, I have not seen that as much with other species. I, I'm a, I'm a turkey hunter, but I'm an antler addict. Like, yeah. I, you put a yeah, deer in front of me and I get, I get mad at them. I mean, I get, I get really mad at them. <laughs> Work really hard deer hunting. And it's, it's a personal challenge to me, but um, with turkeys, I, I see it differently. And, and maybe it's just because of what I do for a living, but I've never uh, had that craze, although I see it in, in people. I see it in, in, in particularly in, in people of your age group, that there's this, there's this idea that the, you know, more is better. Um, I'm gonna kill as many of them as I can. I'm gonna travel as many states, and, and don't get me wrong, I travel all over the place. Well, I can't this year, but yeah. But usually every year I travel out of state and I kill turkeys because I enjoy doing it, um, and I cherish the opportunity to do it. But I also look around, and I see, um, I see this culture that has developed around this bird and the killing of this bird that I I look at with a with kind of a sharp eye, if you will, because um, I've never quite grasped it. And maybe it's just because I'm a little bit older and I'm a little farther in my hunting career than, than others. Um, you know, I can kill a bird and I'm, I'm fine. I don't, I don't need to fill my tags. Um, in fact, if you told me here in Georgia, I could fill my tags, I still wouldn't um, because I see the issues facing the bird and I, I'm, you know, I, I just, I'm not interested in doing that, but I go out of state to places every year and I fill tags just like you do. And I have realized in my own kind of looking at myself that the way I, what I get from the harvest now is not what I got 10 years ago or even five years ago. I look at the hunts that I've had recently and I I think, you know what? I probably didn't need to shoot that second bird. If yeah. I just went home after I shot the first Marion, I'd have probably been okay. Um, because in the end, I just went out there to see new people and chase birds in a new landscape. And I was there for a few days and I shot a bird and it was great. And I went home and I, I look back to some of the hunts where I did fill my tags and I didn't enjoy those hunts anymore. Honestly, I look back on those hunts and I say, okay, did, when I shot two Rios versus one Rio, did I come home disappointed? And I think maybe 20 years ago, I would have said yes. And now it's unequivocally no. It's, uh, it just, it's the numbers game just doesn't matter to me anymore. And I, I see that, I hear the same thing from quite a few hunters now. I, I see a lot of people that say what you just said, that it feels a little different for me now than it did a few years ago. And 
And in some cases, you know, that may be okay. And again, you know, I'm not putting my compass on anyone else, but I, I think you see that as an as we evolve as hunters. I know I've mm-hmm. seen the deer. I know I've seen that with, with my son. I've watched my son become a very accomplished hunter. And at 18 years old, I've seen him change dramatically in regards to kind of how he perceives himself as a hunter. He's, he's tickled to death killing one deer as long as he shoots it with his bow versus five that he wanted to kill, you know, when he was 12 years old. So I, I see that ethic in a lot of, of us. And, um, yeah, I hope, it, I hope it continues in the turkey hunting world because I think it's for the better. And I think the more we can respect the resource and, and the work it takes to create those birds, and sustain those birds on the landscape. As we talked about, it, it's just the odds are stacked so high against them ever reaching that age to where we can enjoy them. Um, if we all kind of look in ourselves and, and we all have to ask ourselves these questions, um, am I satisfied with less? And if, if you ask me, if, am I satisfied with less harvest and more numbers? Yes. But that's a, that's a question we all have to ask ourselves for sure. Well, you mean you're are you satisfied with less to have more for you in the future years and possibly further generations? I mean, that's yeah. kind of the question that yeah. we're asking. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a tough question, man. Yeah. They're tough conversations are tough questions that they hit home because, you know, we we're human beings and we we carry I mean, all these things have emotional attachments. You know, you're attached to things that you enjoy doing and um they're tough conversations. Like I said, to me, it all boils down. This is not a hunting. This is not a hunting issue. This is an issue with, with hunters and the regulations that we work under. Mm-hmm. And as we work forward together collectively as a group, we need to be able to have the difficult conversations like we're having right now and, and try to discuss amongst ourselves well, what, what most drives our quality what most drives our satisfaction? Is it hearing birds, seeing birds, harvesting birds? What is it? And what do we need to be satisfied? You know, is it one bird, five birds, however many birds it is? What is it going to take to keep hunter satisfaction high? Because that's what drives people to want to go. And and I'll give you an example. My son doesn't, he's not an avid turkey hunter. Of all turkey hunt, he doesn't turkey hunt. He will it's hard for me to get him to go because we, I can't reliably take him and and get on birds. Uh, In fact, I can't reliably take him and even get him to hear a bird on some mornings. So it's tough for me to recruit a kid who is a fanatical hunter. He just doesn't want a turkey hunt. He'd rather go bass fishing because he can't go hear birds. Yeah. More action. Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 you know, what got us, you and I hooked on turkey hunting was we, we could find birds. We could go find birds, and more importantly, we could be successful. Um, after I shot the first bird I ever caught up in the spring, I was hooked because it's just a visceral experience. It's just so gut-wrenching. It's like, damn, that was awesome. You know? Yeah, I, I, I was just pondering that. It's like, why are you so – why do we get emo- so emotional during the hunt? Like, I've gone out mornings where it's like, hey – we're just going to chill out. It's a nice morning. If you kill one, it's fine. 
If you don't, that's fine. And then the second you hear that, it's like, I need to get that one. Like I have to get it. It's such the gobble is such an emotional thing. And then probably it's not going to come together early in the morning. And it's like, oh, Jesus, never going to get another chance. (laughs) You know, Turkey, it's such a one-on-one thing, man. Yeah, it's crazy. It's not like, you know, I kind of do it with deer because I find a deer that I'm really after. And I'm like, I'm going to kill him. Mm -hmm. This is personal. You know, I'm I'm going to kill that deer. And in a lot of situations, I do. Um, I've never felt like that with turkeys to the degree that I do with deer, but I do get it. I have encountered some birds that pissed me off so bad that it was just, you know, I'm going to go kill that bird yeah. water. And I agree with you. I've, you know, I'll go out and just be having a relaxing morning. And all of a sudden it's like, it's like, Oh my God, <laughs> yeah. he just changed, you know? Um, yeah, it's just, it, I think turkey hunting is so personal. It's just a, a one-on-one thing. And I've said this before, you know, we hunt turkeys when we don't hunt other things. Yeah. So this is what we do. Mm-hmm. Go out in the spring woods to hunt this bird. We don't have squirrel hunting, but you know, you don't, you don't have other things you can go do. Um, and therefore it becomes a real part of our fabric as people. And when you start asking people that are so interested in something to, to give up opportunity or to change behavior, it's tough. It's tough conversations. It's tough um, moral ground to try to navigate, try not to, again, impose what one of us thinks on someone else because we just can't do that. We can't. Yeah. Well, we can have these conversations and keep having them and at least, at least introduce the thought. Cause I, yeah. I, I wasn't, I had never had the thought introduced that there was like this ethics involved with how many turkeys you kill. Cause I just, I never saw a decline. So it's like the perfect storm hearing you speak about it. Me for the first time thinking that there is a general decline in our area, considering what we, we had five years ago and can't help, but think of what you, what I did to um, help that or not help it, but you know, help, help, be, the decline. help the decline. Um, so yeah, trust me, I have these, I have the same thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. Yeah. So we won't take any more of your time where if oh, someone, on, I want to, okay. Um, we're getting <laughs> dream hunt that doesn't involve turkeys. Um, dream hunt that doesn't involve turkeys. Uh, this may sound absolutely bizarre, but uh, Lord Derby Eland in Central Africa, uh, either that or Bongo, that wow. that would be epic month-long type overseas. I love to travel. I love to travel. I love to see new things, meet people, see different critters. Um if it were a North American type thing, one hunt I have not done is I have not been on a sheep hunt. And I would absolutely love to go on a sheep hunt. Same, man. Same. <laughs> yeah, man, I I really want to do that. It's it's bucket list. It's just, it's hard to justify financially. Um, and the amount of time that it, that it takes to do it. But I'm going to do it before I get much older because if I wait too much longer, I'll 
probably be decrepit and end up dead on the side of a mountain somewhere left for predator bait. So I mean, that hey, would be, go. yeah, that, oh, that's honestly. Jed's choice on how to die. Well, not me because yeah, that's I've, fine. Seen, I've seen predators kill. I don't want to be that. Um, just let me lay down peacefully with, with a bird gobbling or an elk bugling or something, even a, a whippoorwill or a Chuck Will's widow calling and pass off, but I don't want a cougar taking me. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I'd rather like die, uh, die a natural death, but, but in that setting and let, let scavengers have me. I'm going to leave that for you, boss. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> hey, Jake killer. Yeah, you Jake murder. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it'd be karma, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you, you ruined Wisconsin's turkey population, so Single that's what hand. you deserve. Your payback is you get killed by a cougar. Yeah, yeah. Well, anything else, Mike? Uh, where can people find you? What can they do to uh, support the effort that you're putting in? Yeah, if you're, if you're interested in, in social media posts or, or anything, I, I post every, every week on all of my social media platforms. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at it's at uh, Wild Turkey Doc, just the word Wild Turkey, D-O-C. Um, I have a Facebook account I also post on. It's just my name, so you can dig that up. It's pretty easy to, to find. Obviously, you can email me if you just go to the University of Georgia's uh, Warnell School of Forestry and Natural Resources website. You can just search on my name. You can email me at my university account. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty good about email. I, I try my best. I, I get pretty swamped this time of year, but if you contact me, I will follow up with you. It may take me a week. Uh, I don't, I, I cannot stand people that don't reply um, to correspondences. That drives me absolutely nuts. So I do take time to go through every comment, every, well, not, maybe not every comment, but if you send me a question, I will respond to it at some point. I, yeah, don't get, I do ignore some comments, particularly if you question my manhood or <laughs> wish ill on me, I'll tend to ignore you. But if you do have a, a question about turkeys or anything else that you think I could help you with, either you know reach out to me on social media or just shoot me an email and I'll get back with you. Yeah, and on a different podcast, I'll have a, a more aggressive attack on people who want to negatively comment towards you. Not with you on the, not with you on the line though. Too respectful for that. So no, I can, I can deal with it. I'm not worried. <laughs> part of the, part of the job, man. Uh, it's it. People are interesting, aren't they? They're an interesting species. We should spend some money in studying them. Um, alrighty. Anything else, Jed, anything else? Nope, I'm good, man. We appreciate you yeah, hanging in here this long. Thanks. Not a problem guys. It's good being with you. Yeah. All right, Mike. Thanks a lot, man. That went a lot longer than we thought, but they usually do. Yeah. You allowed it to go on, so we can't control ourselves. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> my wife my wife's got I'm sitting in my office. My wife's got venison burgers ready when I get home. So Oh that sounds how, good. How do you build yeah. your venison burger? How, how you that? how you building your burger? What are you putting on I, there? I actually I mix mine with ground venison sausage. Okay. Uh, oh, nice. And make patties and then provolone, bacon, lettuce, tomato, onion, sauteed onions. Fantastic. Yep. 
task. What's uh, you you a male guy? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> big male guy right here. Love it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, so she's got she's got dinner ready, and and I've got a, a six pack of pretty jam up IPA that I'm looking forward to attacking. Nice. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, well, we can get home. Yeah, we can appreciate the beer drinking from Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, I, I listened. Uh, I listened to one of your previous podcasts where you were talking about the Meat Eater podcast, and that it was. Yeah. I, I'll be honest. I was thinking to myself, this is definitely going to be a different podcast. If these <laughs> are oh yeah, like that. This, Way less professional. So yeah, so when you sent me the list of questions, I was like, okay, cool. So that I think we're gonna we're gonna be able to swing this pretty well so but oh uh, we can get professional if we need to though those podcasts those podcasts i guess are yeah we get a lot of a little out of control <laughs> yeah that's fine no it was it was funny listening to it yeah. yeah that's awesome well we appreciate it man we'll definitely try to have you on again and good luck turkey hunting this year yeah man you too same to you all righty thank you yep thank take care you very much yep